to a Hope 103.2 podcast. A few years ago, I was having a coffee with a friend in a cafe at my local beach. I was explaining to him what our church was doing to promote Christ amongst the residents of the area. At one point, I noticed this woman a few tables away looking inquisitively at me. Now, I assumed she was a fellow Christian interested in listening into our conversation, so I just kept on talking. A few minutes later, this woman got up from her table, paid her bill, walked straight across to me, and at what seemed like the top of her voice said, So you want to convert the world, do you? How dare you? And off she went. Now, of course, I thought of the perfect comeback about an hour later. At the time, I was dumbfounded. For a moment, I even wondered, maybe our mission is presumptuous. Perhaps promoting Christ to the world is the stuff of fanaticism rather than a reasoned modern faith. Now, I'm sure many of us at times have wondered similar things. The rhetoric of our world, which insists you keep your faith to yourself, is very powerful and sometimes leaves us cringing at the thought of getting overly involved in God's mission to convert the world. So I want to step back and ask, why do we reach out to others with the news of Christ? What ultimately is the driving idea behind God's mission to the world? Now, there are plenty of good biblical answers to this. You could say we promote Christ because he means so much to us personally. And that's true. You could say that we promote Christ because in the Great Commission, he commands us to do so. And that's true as well. But I want to suggest that a more comprehensive reality drives our desire to make Christ known. And not surprisingly, this driving force of mission also happens to be the fundamental idea of the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments. So let me pause and ask you to reflect on what you would regard as the most basic doctrine of the Bible. Go back through your mental list of theological big ideas and try to arrive at the starting point. Now, this isn't a test of faith, by the way. Now, there may be different ways of expressing it, but I think I'd have to answer that question with the simple statement, there is one God. There is one God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible makes the resounding, unapologetic declaration that there is just one creator and Lord of the world. It begins in the Bible's opening line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, to ancient readers, this wasn't simply a sensible way to start a holy book. It was actually a huge swipe at the entire religious outlook of the time. The opening lines of the Babylonian creation story, Enuma Elish, just to give you one example from the period, list no fewer than nine separate gods, all with their own part to play in the events leading up to the creation. Saying God created the heavens and the earth was tantamount to saying that no other deity was involved in the universe at all. And that's exactly what the rest of the Bible says. The central creed of the Old Testament is what's called the Shema. This is a creed still said twice daily by Orthodox Jews. It proclaims an uncompromising monotheism, belief in one God. Here it is, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. It says, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord, the one and only. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul reworks the Shema, which he would have said daily since his youth, in light of the Lordship of Jesus. So he takes the Shema and he reinterprets it in light of the coming of Christ. Here we are in 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Now the original language here is very close to the Jewish Shema. He goes on to say, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Monotheism, crystallized in the universal lordship of Jesus Christ, is the Bible's most basic idea. You could call it Christological monotheism, if we were going to be nerdy about it. But what has monotheism, belief in one Lord, got to do with mission? How is it that the Bible's most basic doctrine is also the fundamental idea behind promoting the gospel? Now, the answer may be obvious, but let me spell it out. If there is just one God in the universe, everyone, everywhere, has a duty to worship that Lord. This brings us to the main text I want to reflect on tonight. Psalm 96 is one of those Bible passages made famous by countless hymns and songs of praise. I hear the tune every time I look at the text. The words are well known, but they mustn't be taken for granted. The truths contained in this portion of God's word are crucial for a biblical understanding of why we promote the Lord to the world. For in this psalm, we not only have a strident affirmation of the lordship of one God, we also have a plea to God's people to publish this reality everywhere in the world. Let me read it to you. Psalm 96, verses 1 to 5. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The opening lines of this psalm are directed to the ancient people of God, the Jews, urging them to sing to the Lord and praise his name within earshot of the pagans or non-Jews around them. In the words of verse 3, they were to declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. This might be hard for us to imagine at first. How could non-Jews or Gentiles overhear Jewish praises of God in the Jerusalem temple? The answer is probably quite simple. Ancient Jerusalem was a bustling international city in the ancient world, and the temple drew not only Jewish visitors, but Gentile ones as well. We know this from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. Later, when Jewish synagogues began to spring up all around the Mediterranean, a psalm like Psalm 96 took on special significance, because now Jews were singing their praises on pagan turf, not just in Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, the Jerusalem temple had a large court 
of the Gentiles. This was specifically designed for Gentiles to experience the praise of the one true God. For ancient Jews, this was a kind of evangelism. Now, it may sound odd to speak of evangelism in the Old Testament, but these opening verses of Psalm 96 make clear that this proclamation of salvation, of God's glory, is intended for those for whom it is news, the pagan nations around Israel. Israel's praise of God in the temple and the synagogue was meant to be overheard by the pagans around about. This is evangelism through our public praise. If we were in any doubt about this at all, verse 7 of the psalm takes up this call to proclaim God's glory to pagans and actually begins to address the Gentiles directly. Here's verse 7 of Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the nations. That's the Gentiles. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. These verses provide the lyrics of the new song Israel was instructed in verse 1 to sing among the nations. And the song turns out to be an invitation to the nations to come and worship the God of Israel, to bring an offering and come into his courts. Exactly the same thought appears in Psalms 57, 66, 108, and the lovely Psalm 117, which says, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. This is nothing other than the fulfilment of King Solomon's inaugural prayer for the Jerusalem temple. After pleading the Lord for blessings on Israel, Solomon asks God for the same blessings to be poured out on non-Israelites. He says, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, when he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel. What King Solomon prayed for, Psalm 96 and others, invites all people everywhere to come to the place of God's presence, the temple in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus in the New, and worship him, the one true God. Hope 103.2. Thanks for listening.